0: Now, the unfortunate thing is, today, when I started to delve into this sanctuary life in the temple, I started to delve in and it's a massive topic, so I want to apologise in advance that it's going to be broad and shallow, but it needs to be so that we can reach our goal of getting to this point. I was imagining myself sitting there in the pews thinking, temple and me, temple and me. What have, has the temple got to do with me? Because as believers, that's our goal when we come here, to try and grapple with what the Bible says, how it applies to our lives now, today. I do not want to give you a history lecture. (laughs) We could spend three weeks on that. So the temple, we're going to try and race through it. I'm going to do my very best to get through it all so that it can actually, you can leave here thinking, oh, I kind of get how the temple applies to me now. Today, And I've got something to think about and chew over about how God, especially, God wants us to be his new temple. Now, when we talk about the temple, we're going to look at three different things. The history of the temple and why that's important is because you might say, I'm not an Israelite. That's got nothing to do with me. That's not my history. Well, you're wrong. You are an Israelite. Huh? You are. You are the new Israel. So the temple is your history. It's part of your faith History. That's why we need to know about it. That's why we're going to talk about that. Then we're going to talk about the temple in God's big story, his big rescue story, and then finally, what it means in our church life today. So the history. Now you talk about temple. Temple? If you ask the experts, they go, which temple? Huh? What do you mean, which temple? Do you mean Solomon's temple? Do you mean Ezekiel's temple? Do you mean Ezra's temple? Do you mean Herod's temple? Oh, So when we're talking about the temple in history, we're actually looking at four temples. We'll get rid of one of the temples, Ezekiel's temple, because that was a vision of a temple. It was never built. But the first one came after the tabernacle. David had an idea. He wants to build this place for God. And one day, there it is. Throughout the history of Israel, God had said, One day, I'm going to have a place where I put my name, where my name will dwell. And David had the vision for it, but wasn't allowed to build it. And Solomon got to build it. Solomon built this, it wasn't massive actually, but it was so opulent. And you can read about it uh, in Kings and Chronicles. Just, it blows your mind. Now, I read things in the Bible like Jesus walks on water, and I sort of think, yeah, I I can almost believe that. But when I was reading this about what Solomon put into that temple, I was almost going, that's almost unbelievable. It was so over the top. And people estimate that even in the sanctuary, there was something like 20,000 tons of gold used. It was like, huh? It was over the top. The main thing when we think about Solomon's temple was that as he was dedicating the temple, what happened? The presence of God came down. And that proved, confirmed, God had found a place to dwell in the midst of his people. Because basically that's what temple means. A holy God dwelling with sinful people. God had promised to be with his people, and he did it in the temple. Now, I don't know if we've got a little timeline. I'll go, but jump back to the timeline if we can, just quickly so you get an idea. First temple was Solomon, 1000 BC, he began it, and it was destroyed by the Babylonians, 586. Then there was a short break while the, the uh, Israelites were in exile. A few of them came back, And this guy, Ezra, well, it wasn't actually Ezra who built it, I don't think, but it's recorded in the book of Ezra. That's why it's called Ezra's Temple. That was the second temple. That survived hundreds of years, survived the Alexander the Great invasion, survived the Roman invasion. And actually, when the Romans came, this guy, King Herod, decided he was going to refurbish the temple, and he did. Around 20 BC, he started building it. He made it absolutely massive. It wasn't as glamorous as Solomon's Temple, but it was still the second temple and it was huge. So let's keep going with Solomon's Temple. I think we just talked about that. And <coughs> maybe there's some pictures. There you go. It's amazing on the internet, there's even Lego models of Solomon's Temple if you want them. We'll keep going, there's another one. These are that's computer generated one of Solomon's temple with the altar and the water for purification. we okay, we we'll keep going? Now that's a cutaway, just shows you if you think what was inside, just think gold, gold and the best wood, gold, best wood. There was a toothbrush made of gold, there was a toilet holder, that was made of gold, the hinges made of gold, the doorknob made of gold, everything made of gold, massive, amazing, opulent. Then we step back, we step back, next one, next slide. No, we've lost those pictures. Okay, that's right. Ezra's temple. Ezra came back and he built the next temple with the help of a whole lot of mates. And this one, as you can see, is not as impressive. And there's actually a verse from the Bible that says, um, we can have a look at that. Is that okay? Which describes when they set the foundation, there were people who'd been alive at the time of Solomon's temple and there were people who hadn't seen Solomon's temple. And those who'd seen Solomon's temple wept because it was nothing like the old one. But the people who hadn't seen anything were rejoicing because they finally had built a place for God to dwell in their midst. Now, we might say, oh, it's a shame it wasn't as big as Solomon's temple, but this was really significant, Ezra's, Nehemiah's temple, because it was the beginning of an amazing um, identity, growing identity of the Israelite people and how to worship God. Solomon's temple had been built mostly under duress. under They'd been forced into it. This temple was built by the people, for the people to worship their God. It was the beginning of an incredible identity change and embracing of uh, being Israelites, being God's people. So even the temple wasn't impressive. What it signified was. And that grew and grew and grew up until the time when we meet of Jesus and we see the Israel the Jewish identity and how to worship had grown out of those beginnings and it was very unique and as much purer than during the Solomon temple time so let's skip to the next one Herod's temple or something There's Herod's temple that one shows the cutaway again of the inside and I don't know if you can see it but there is um there was a, a massive curtain between the holy place and the holy of holies And just the gist of it is, there's a place where God is, and as you got further out, there were all these barriers and distance, and so different people could enter and not enter at the same time. Like, for example, that middle bit, the Holy of Holies, where Zechariah went, and he had a vision of the angel saying, you're going to have a son. Places like that all turn up in the stories. Then if we step back further, we can see the furthest courtyard was where the priests could go and the Israelite men, then if you look at the courtyard closest to us, that was called the women's courtyard, where women could go and could go no further. Then if we step back further, we can see the outer courtyard, the Gentile courtyard, where I think most of us would be worshipping God. We wouldn't be allowed to go further. They actually dug up a sign in Greek that says, do not go past this point, enter at your own risk. If you do, your death will be on your own head. They've dug up that sign. Then we step back even further, <clears throat> we can see a, the massive, the whole courtyard thing. And there, there would have been things like people buying and selling, as we read in that story of Jesus clearing out the temple. That's where Jesus would have done it. We step back even further, and this is flipped around the other side, where we can see a view of Jerusalem. And... Um, That just shows how massive it was. And I've lost my, in translation, I've lost my arrow, but that black block was originally an arrow pointing to a little hill called Golgotha. So this is the, the scheme of things of Herod's temple and just how central that was to worship of God. Okay, let's keep moving. That's the history. Phew. Some of you might be disappointed, wanted more. But what that does is gives us a picture of the history of that's, that's a 1,000 years or more of this being part of embedded in the faith of God's people, including you. It's part of your faith. And that's why we don't just dismiss it as anachronistic, okay? Let's move to the story. The story says, I made you for a relationship with me, like Kev discussed in the garden. That was the original plan. But you blew it. But because you are my people and I love you, my presence will be with you. God wants His to be with his people. But there will always be distance and barriers between us. That's the story so far. By the time you reach the time of Jesus and the temple time, that's the story. There's the message. And I think Brad emphasized that last week. Not just the temple, but the Sanctuary. Stop. No further. You can't come in. There were two strong messages. Next slide. God is holy. You are sinful. Now, I love this. In terms of not talking history, we step back as a story, as God's story. This time in history, when we reach the temple, is a climax, it's a tension where you have this God who wants to be with his people but can't be with his people. And it's most strongly expressed in that big Herod temple. It was as clear as anything. Now, what I wish, rather than just, I guess, sterile pictures, did you notice there was no one in those pictures? What we really need is a video of a goat or a lamb being slaughtered. That's what we need for us today, to grasp it. I don't know if you've ever seen an animal being slaughtered. It's pretty gruesome. And that was what was in their face every day. It was a powerful, tangible, accurate picture of God and us. And that's why in this story, here's the tension. But what we bring when we come to the point of Jesus, we see the climax. And the tension is there, what can a relational God do? Because that's the story part, not the history part. Let's keep going. What does God do? It unfolds. God's solution, the first one. In John 1, the most beautiful image, God became human and tabernacled among us as Jesus. As some of you probably already know. When John, the disciple, was writing his story, he actually used that word tabernacled. How beautiful is that? God said, I know what I'm going to do. I really want to be with my people. I'm going to go and tabernacle in their midst. It's as if God, in the holy of holies, put on flesh and walked out of the holy of holies, through the holy place, out into the community. That's God's solution. God's solution. I mean, that's awesome. That's mind blowing the lengths God went to to achieve relationship with us. That's in 1 John. John talks about that. Then in Hebrews, we talk about what this climax of the story, what happened, what Jesus did. And he says, before this happened, but now Jesus has come. And what Jesus has done, he's revolutionized the temple. What has he done? He's entered the scene, he's lived, he's died. He's come alive. And in doing so, he has superseded the temple, not eliminated. He's kept the idea going. But he's superseded it, the temple and the sacrifices and the priesthood. And he's resolved that temple tension. Now, as far as story goes, maybe you want to think about this more because it's hard to communicate. But that's amazing. I love that story. The tension. What's going to happen? What's going to happen? What's going to happen? How will God do it? Jesus, and he's done it. (coughs) Sorry. And that's the story. And that's why looking at the temple is also important. For us today, we see how God has resolved that and maintained the whole temple idea, and it's still important for us today. So, the temple today. Three strands. As I said, we, after Jesus, it's not like, oh, we don't talk about the temple anymore because that temple was destroyed and it's gone and there is no temple. That hasn't happened. We still talk about temple. We use temple language. Jesus, Cornerstone, we were just singing. It's still part of our vocabulary. And to, in order to be God's people, we still need to understand it and what it means for us today. So when we talk about the temple today, what seems to have happened is, when we read the New Testament, the t- idea of temple came out in three strands. In Jesus, in the church, and in individuals. Now, Kev's going to talk, most, I think, next week about how it, the temple is in us as individuals. So today, I'll just emphasize how it's expressed in Jesus and in the church. The temple in Jesus. What did it look like? <clears throat> as Hebrews says, Jesus has superseded... He's much better than. He's become the ultimate sacrifice, ultimate priest, an ultimate, I called it, unveiler of God. This is what Jesus has done. Do you notice it's still temple imagery that helps us understand our faith, the ultimate sacrifice. Now, we won't go into this today too much, but the question that this raises in ultimate sacrifice is, is Jesus your ultimate sacrifice? That's one of the questions that thinking about temple raises, and we need to ask ourselves. I don't know where you're at with Jesus, but that means asking, do I recognize that I, there's a punishment that needs to be paid, there's a sacrifice that needs to be made, and that Jesus has made that for me? That's a question we need to ask. And even if you've believed for decades, it's always a good question to ask. Not just did I once believe that or count on that, but am I living that continuously? I'm not saved by that sacrifice 20 years ago. I'm saved by it today because I don't know about you. I needed a fresh start today. That's the first question. Can we keep going? (coughs) Thanks, Ian. What? Oh there we go. That's apple for you. Anyway. Second question. Sacrifice. Priest. Now I don't know about you these days, but when I think of priest, they get a bad rap, don't they? You think of priest, what do you think of? How positive is your reaction? I know a lot of people who'd say no thank you. Or people who think about going to someone wearing a funny hat. On funny clothes, or you think of a confession box, or worse, or you think of Rowan Atkinson. What do you think of? And it's really important that we learn or we think about identifying as Jesus as the priest he is portrayed in the Bible. If you want to know more, go to Hebrews. It's beautiful. And I encourage you to do that, because there we see Jesus as what. He's the guy who's for you. He is for you. He's the guy who encourages you to come into God's presence. There's two beautiful passages. One of them talks about he is a guy who can sympathize with you. It actually says he cannot not sympathize with you. About what? About your weaknesses, about your struggles, about your brokenness. That is the priest, Jesus. Not some wussy guy. That's your Jesus priest. He says, I understand, I get it. The Bible also says that he deals gently with us when we're going astray. He's not harsh. He's not pointing the finger at you saying you did it again. You failed again, John. That is the Jesus who is your priest. Is that the Jesus you relate to when you're, praying to him, when you're coming into God's presence. He's the guy who leads you past the curtain. Thirdly, Jesus, our ultimate unveiler of God. <clears throat> now, in doing this, I actually had a, like a mini-revelation, which was really encouraging. That <laughs> I kept thinking about how we often see this, what Jesus did was about, say, ripping the curtain <coughs> <coughs> Sorry, which, if you don't know the story, is when Jesus died, that massive curtain that separated us from the sanctuary got ripped in half. Now, Josephus, a historian of that time, reckons it was four inches thick, that curtain. So it's incredibly symbolic. Ugly, that is the climax of the whole Bible. That temple, going, temple curtain going, because of Jesus. He's the unveiler of God. And I think what's important is, oh my goodness, that's my alarm saying I've got 10 minutes left. What I love about that is we often think about what Jesus did so we can go in. While I was preparing this, I realized what Jesus did so God can get out. And that's what Jesus did. He let God out. Before If you'd ask an Israelite, what's God like? Terrifying. Holy. He's good. He's fair. He's faithful. But because of the temple and because of the actual religious structures that weren't of God, there was this picture of God that really limited God. When Jesus came, He was able to do two things. One, in his living, his living, he was able to express God. Because in John, we read that if you've seen Jesus, you've seen God. Jesus is God. He was able to express, as a human, God's compassion, accessibility, love. Love for the lost, not for the holy, for the sick, not the unsick, for sinners, not for the good people. Jesus was able to embody that. He was unveiling God as different to how they thought God was. That was his life. That's what Jesus did with his life. And purely by being there, Jesus was saying, I want to be with you. I'm accessible. Then in his teaching, Jesus did, he just revolutionized it in his words. For starters, he began to call God Father. That was totally radical. No one had ever talked to God like that. No one had ever prayed to God like that. And he was saying, I give you permission to call God Father because he's like a father. And in particular, we look at the stories Jesus told about this God. And even more particular, the story of, for example, the prodigal son, where the son goes away, squanders, wastes, sins, does terrible things and wants to come back. Now, if you'd asked an Israelite, how should that father treat that son? They would have said, he should stone him. But Jesus blows that apart. What is the father in that story, the father representing God? What does he do? He runs. It's like he ran out of the sanctuary to embrace, to kiss, to fully accept that son. And that's just amazing. We don't get it today because we're so used to that story. But in those times, it was radical. That God is not just the holy, unapproachable God, terrifying God. He's more than that. He's a beautiful, accepting Father. And what is most important is His delight in you. That is what you, we need to think about today, is to receive that. Do we grasp God's delight in us? You go, no, 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 I'm, I'm too sinful. So what? He delights in you. No, 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 I can't. He delights in you. He fully accepts you. He is overjoyed about what Jesus has accomplished. That is what the unveiling that Jesus did opens up for us. And it's temple related, isn't it? But it hits us home here. got six minutes here we go next one the temple in us we'll jump quickly if we can get to 1 peter 2 where it talks about us in the church our identity and our participation and our motivation is that passage up there can that come up because that's the passage where our text we're looking at comes from isn't it it's right there peter's done it for us peter wants to describe the church today and how we look what does he use? Temple imagery. I mean, Peter's all over the shop with metaphors. He loves shepherds. He loves new baby bo- babies. He loves gold, everything. He's, but this is the images he uses to describe the church are temple images. You're coming to Christ who's the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for great honor. And you are the living stones that God is building in his spiritual temple. What's more, you are his holy priests. Through through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. You are a chosen people. Now I'll stop, Oh, I'll keep going actually. Your royal priesthood, holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God for he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. Once you had no identity as a people, now you are God's people. Once you received no mercy, now you have received mercy. In there we see Identity. We want to be God's people. And here, Peter's using temple imagery to say, this is who you are. You are living stones. You are priests. You are a chosen people. Now we haven't got time, but I think we need to acknowledge that. Do you acknowledge that? You are a priest. Oh, no, thanks. Well, you are. I don't like that. Well, you are. Acknowledge it. Contemplate it. What does it mean? You are a living stone. Okay. What does it mean? Contemplate it. Embrace it. Be a living stone. What does it mean to be a living stone? Think about it and then align your thinking and your actions to it. That's our identity, our participation. I love the message. He says, present yourselves. That's participation. That's what God wants you to do. As a living stone, present yourself. As a priest, offer sacrifices. What? Killing lambs and chickens? or No. Think about it. What does it mean today to offer pleasing sacrifices? In short, love God, love others. That's the most beautiful sacrifice you can do. Think about it and then align your life to it. And the motivation? In, uh, the, at the beginning of that chapter, <clears throat> chapter 2 verse 1, Peter talks about you have tasted that the Lord is good. He talks about you were once in darkness, now you are in light. That is your motivation. If God's been good to you, That is the motivation. And if you're finding, oh, I'm not very motivated, I encourage you to go back and think about what Jesus has done for you. Pray about it. It's not just an intellectual exercise. It's a spiritual one. Ask God to show you the darkness he's rescued you from. And that will stir you up to become the people of God.